As you get seated, if you would open your copy of the scriptures, if you have one, to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 27. So we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount for the last uh, little over a month now. And this is normally the time when I heckle Joe for giving me the really hard passage to deal with. Because it always happens. And um, unfortunately, I cannot because we switched weeks. I was supposed to preach next week, uh, but we have some vacation plans and switched around. So this is, this is my own doing. So y'all get ready. Lust and divorce. Here we go. Sunday morning. Everybody excited? Um, the fact that I've just said those words, I think our, our stress level is probably already here and we just like jumped it, Right? Some of you are feeling guilty. Some of you are feeling like I'm pointing at you. Um, So I want to start with just three things. Three kind of um, presuppositions before we get into this. um, That I just want to kind of calm us down. Let our hearts settle a little bit. And let our hearts focus on Christ and what the Scripture says. And I, so before we get into this, before you panic, before you tune me out, just, just hear three things of where we're going with this. Number one, all of us are sinners, right? That, that's like Bible 101, you know, vacation Bible school. We can all quote Romans 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We know that. But then when the Scripture starts naming specific sins... <laughs> We forget, right? It's, it, what we really know in our hearts is those people have sin. And then Scripture starts kind of messing with us, and we start struggling with that. But we have all sinned. All of us are sinners. And for those of us of age, we're all sexual sinners. So I, I know I may be making people mad already. I may be getting people uncomfortable already. But the reality is we are sinners. But on the flip side of that, the goal of this sermon is not to beat anybody up, not to make someone wallow in guilt, but to help point us to Christ. That's one of the purposes of what Jesus is doing here. So at the end of this sermon, my prayer and goal, my hope for you, this is, this is written in such a way as we walk through what Christ said, and I think exactly what Christ was saying, is that we ought not be overwhelmed by guilt. But we have extreme gratitude for overwhelming grace. See, we're all sinners. But we serve a gracious, loving Heavenly Father, who sent His Son to die for our sin. So I want us to end this, not with guilt, not with overwhelming guilt, but gratitude for overwhelming grace. Number two, we need to fight both the the big sins and the little sins in our life. Now, Jesus doesn't categorize things, by the way, in that that ballpark. And, And as a matter of fact, I think that's part of what He's doing here in these verses. It's not those people who do that really bad thing out there that are sinners. All of us are guilty of sin. All of us need to learn to fight sin. Not just those big ones that really get you in trouble. All sin. Third thing, 
Each of these statements that Jesus is making, and this is, by the way, why Lee read that earlier passage there, were to confront the self-righteousness of of the local religious leaders. They were called the scribes and the Pharisees. And, And what they had done is they'd taken the Old Testament and they had twisted it to show themselves to be good and righteous. So how many of you have seen your kids or grandkids or, or just kids in general when they're out playing on the playground, if you observe and listen to their, their games, because they have the most brilliant imaginations, and they can make a game out of anything, right? But you have you ever paid attention to the rules to their games? Somehow their rules to the games always work to their advantage. Have you noticed that? It's like boys in blue jeans are the only people who can score and nothing else counts, Right? They've stacked the deck so that they're guaranteed to win. Well, that's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees had done. This is sin because I don't do that. This, oh, that's not sin, no. They stacked the deck to hide their own sins, feel good about themselves and holier than everyone else. And what they were actually doing is hiding their own sexual self-righteousness. And Jesus exposes it. So, so here's kind of the structure for the, today. The, the two points there on your bulletin, they are not creative, all right? What does Jesus say about lust? Number two, what does Jesus say about divorce? There you go, you can fill them in, it's real easy. But we're going to kind of break down four categories for each of these. What was being taught? What were these scribes and Pharisees teaching? Two, what does the Old Testament actually say? And three, how does Jesus get to our hearts? How does he get to the heart of the matter and show us that we're sinners in need of his salvation and grace? And fourth, for people who are saved, for for redeemed kingdom citizens, how can we strive to live our lives so that we as God's children can bring him joy? was part of the meditation, the, the reading that, saw, that Steve had out of Psalms there. Basking in the joy of the Father. Just sitting in His love. And so my prayer for you today, and what I have been praying for you, whether you're here at home, is that we won't just crumble under the guilt of knowing our own sin but that we will start to fight our sin in Christ and bring a smile to the Father. What a joy that brings. Can you imagine the nights when you're sitting there feeling guilty? Those nights being turned around to something beautiful. And that won't all happen. We're still sinners. But we have been saved by grace. And there is hope for victory in Christ. So the first thing, what does Jesus say about lust? I'm gonna, I, I want to kind of preface this a little bit, and then we're going to come back and read uh, chapter 5, verse 27. So the religious leaders were teaching that as long as you didn't commit actual adultery, which, by the way, is one of the Ten Commandments, that's a bad thing. We should not commit adultery, right? But as long as you didn't do that, you're good. Everything's cool. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. The two most commonly asked questions of pastors, you ready for them? Number one, most commonly asked question of pastors, how do you say this in Greek or Hebrew? 
and you have to be really careful answering that question, and I always look it up if you ask me, because I'm going to see it on a tattoo the next week. I've learned it. You don't want to mess that one up. But the second most asked question is usually from teenagers. How far can I go with my boyfriend and girlfriend before it's sin? Like, what's that edge? How close can I get to this? And I'm not going to literally get close to the edge because I will fall. You all know how clumsy I am. Like, how close can I get? How many toes can I stick over that edge before I fall over? I've made many a teenager mad by saying you are asking the wrong question. If that's your concern is how far can I go before it's really bad? You've missed the heart of Scripture. And that's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees had done. You see, the Old Testament actually talks about our heart when it comes to sin in general, but specifically sexual sin. Job, the godly man of the Old Testament who suffered so long and so well, never blaming God, never cursing God, said this of his own heart when it came to to sexual holiness. He said, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How could I gaze at a virgin? Some other translations translations say it, look lustfully at a woman. He was so burdened. He made a promise with his eyes for what he would choose to see. His, His heart was grabbed to pursue holiness. His heart was grabbed. Let me give you one other. Psalm, or excuse me, Proverbs 11.6 says this. The righteousness of the upright delivers them, but the treacherous are taken captive by their lust. Obviously, they're not physically arrested. It's in their heart. Their lust captures their soul. They start to worship another besides God. See, God has always been about the heart. It's just like Jesus said, you have to be more righteous than the Pharisees to live as a kingdom citizen. It's not just about that big thing out there. Where's your heart? So look how Jesus twisted and turned back to the right way what they had done. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 27 says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, and actually, the, 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 it's bad English, that's why our translations help us see it. It says, it, you keep on looking. He defines lust right there. But everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent or keeps on looking at her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away from you, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away from you, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. So Jesus gets right to it. He tells us that our lust, our sin, Those things that people can't see, but are very much in our minds and hearts. See, Jesus cuts right to the heart. He he tells us, you're of age. Yeah, you're you're a sexual sinner too. We need repentance, grace, and training in righteousness. 
I wonder, truth be told, how many of us sitting here today have turned this week to pornography on our phones or fantasy in our minds to numb the suffering of daily life? Before you think, oh, this isn't a big deal, let me give you a few statistics. 28% of work computers have been used to view porn. The average American worker spends an hour and 38 minutes per week watching porn while at work. 40 million Americans are regular porn users. The increase in the use of pornography since COVID has hit, and all of our stress levels, you know, hit the roof, depending on sources, is between 15 and 60% increases. Before you just think, oh yeah, those people out there are bad. Statistically, 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women use porn at least once a month. In other words, 40 out of 100 of you here are looking at stuff on your computers or devices. This is a far worse pandemic that will condemn more souls and draw more souls from the cause of Christ than anything else. And that's just actually looking at images. Heaven forbid they knew the stats on what's in our minds and hearts. Folks, we need to repent. Church, we need to repent. The vast majority of people sitting right here today need to repent this morning. Most of us need to run like that lonely, guilty, filthy prodigal to our Father. But I want you to think about it. That man who was literally in a pigsty in the story he smelt, comes trudging home to his dad. But what, what is the dad doing? Where's the father in this story? Where's he at? He's watching. He is looking out in the distance for his son. He sees his son a long way off, is the exact words of the Scriptures. And what does he do? Does he sit there? <laughs> no. Happened again. It says he takes off in a run. And I just picture myself, so I'm, you know, I'm not 20 anymore. And I just, I know how as a dad I run. It's not a pretty sight. Probably never was when I ran. Joe, Joe may have it. He may be the one dad in here that can run and not be something undignified. <laughs> but there's nothing I would do more than to wrap my little boy or my little girl up when they've come back. When they've realized they've done something wrong. And let me encourage you, brother or sister, who is sitting in the filth of sin, you have a father who loves you, who's watching for you, is come, come on back, please. And he runs to you. 
with gracious, open arms. There's a reason we sang that alliterated song, marvelous, matchless, magnificent love. And that's what the Father has for you today. He loves you. You see, Jesus died for actual sins. Like, we say Jesus died for sin, right? But no, Jesus died for this sin. What you did last Friday night, what you did last night, Jesus died for that, and He forgives. He really, actually does forgive sinners like me and like you. There is great, great hope because we have a great, great, gracious God. So don't wallow in your sin. Run to the Father. You see, when we see our sin as big as it actually is, we get to view Jesus' cross as bigger and better than we ever imagined. So church, when you sin, Repent. Turn from your sin to Jesus Christ and trust Him. Okay, painful part done, right? Let's, let's move forward. I want, I want to come out of this. I want, I want to end on it. How can we as the church, as people who actually believe Jesus died for us, has saved us, has made us righteous before Him, how can we press forward? Jesus offers a way. First, just some application. Fight lust, both visually and your mind. Fight lust as an act of worship to Jesus. The reason we sing that song so much, Jesus is better, is because we want our hearts. As the song says, make my heart believe. With the beating of your chest, that comes from that earnest desperation. Make us choose Jesus. Fight lust as an act of worship. Jesus says this fight is more important than your eyes and your arms. Jesus is obviously exaggerating. Nobody go grab a saw or anything. We don't have screwdrivers lined up on the parking lot for you know, use up. No, that's, it, it's, it's an exaggeration to get our attention. But Jesus has said, your fight for personal holiness. He's made you practically holy. Excuse me. Let me switch that. He has made you positionally holy. But your fight for personal holiness, to actually live that out, is more important than your eyes and your arms. That's how desperate we ought be to love our Jesus by living a holy life. Two. Act in love by putting guards, filters, blockers, whatever the technological option might be on you and your spouse's and your child's devices. So back to an alarming statistic. 71% of teenagers actually admit to lying to their parents about their internet use. That's how many people admit it. All right? Don't be lazy on this, church. It takes some effort. You may make some, we may hear teenagers scream tonight. That's okay. That's all right. You're their parent. That's your job. We can help you. We can direct you, but, but take time. If you need some technological help on this, we can direct you to people who can do that, but usually it's just Google the device. How do you do it? And, and there's a YouTube video to show you how. 
take the time. Don't trust yourself. Just don't trust yourself. We're sinners, remember? Third thing, um, we've got books. This stuff is, do you know how weird it is to be talking about this stuff up from a pulpit? Like, this is awkward, okay? Can, can we just all acknowledge that? It's, it's even more awkward to admit you have a problem with this stuff. That you're struggling in this sin. So out there, if you could go through the brown doors back there in the back, there's a little clear display of these little tiny books. They're, they're about 20 pages. I mean, these are really short. What's wrong with a little porn when you're single? If you, if you want a book that's going to really address, okay, here's where I'm at right now. Feeling guilty? Grace for your mistakes. And there's probably one for your situation out there right now. That's a step. And maybe grab a brother, a sister, an elder, elder's wife, one of our deacons, one of our deaconesses. Have a conversation. Say, I'm fighting and I'm losing. Would you walk with me? Fourth, again, where we want to end is not overwhelming guilt. So stop feeling guilty for sin that Jesus already died for. Your son or your daughter came to you and said, I want to trust Jesus. I want forgiveness for my sin. I, I would guess every one of you would have a pretty good answer for them of trust Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus, right? We, we know that. This, this is not, you know, sudden revelation. But how many of us falter when it comes to actually trusting Jesus to forgive that sin? That you just did. Jesus didn't die for some of your sins. He died for your sin. All of them. That one. So trust Jesus. And enjoy his overwhelming grace. Number two. What Jesus says about divorce. Let me read this. This is verse 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So back to our kind of four subgroups here. First, what were the scribes and Pharisees teaching? That quotation is really interesting. It's two places in the Old Testament. It's originally in Deuteronomy, and it's almost a whole chapter long, giving all sorts of details, and it was set up to actually protect women. Then Jeremiah quoted it and applied it to our hearts, that that it's like we're divorcing God, we're rejecting God. And he only quoted the first part because he didn't get to give all those details because he was applying it to our hearts, not a literal divorce. But what the Pharisees did and what the scribes did is, ooh, they see a loophole. So they quote the first part of that from Jeremiah, forgetting all the details of Deuteronomy. See, they lived in a Roman world, and as bad as in many areas where we need to do better as a society, and particularly as Christian men in how we treat women, we're several thousand steps ahead of where, ahead of where they were in the Roman world in Jesus' day. 
And the Pharisees, rather than being godly people, adopted what they saw in the world and justified it by twisting Scripture. See, they, they used that partial quotation from Jeremiah so that they have an excuse. They don't meet the qualifications of Deuteronomy. They take a partial quotation and make it their entire policy. Deuteronomy's goal was to protect women and limit divorce. But it's basically like the religious leaders were saying, if it's legal, I mean, it can't be wrong, right? They had basically found their own loophole for no-fault divorce. Just want to. And they had used that particularly to mistreat women. let me say something to you. Some of you here have been the victims of just this sort of chauvinist abuse. I'm so sorry. We love you. This is not your sin. It is others. I'm going to talk about this a little more in a minute, but The church's goal is to love and protect you. Please hear that. So what does Jesus do to to correct this understanding? He he, he corrects it, this deliberate misreading of the Old Testament laws of divorce. And, And Jesus shows that divorce is sinful except in certain extremes. Jesus shows that divorce is not for convenience, it's not for self-gratification, it's not for laziness, it's not just because marriage is hard. Divorce is certainly not allowed to take advantage of women. Jesus attacks these predatory men. All through Scripture, it's amazing how many times Jesus just throws down on these dudes. But it's also strikingly beautiful when he sees the women who've been affected by it, sometimes, including their own sin, he's compassionate and kind. Jesus flies in the face of what they were doing. So what do we do? Divorce all over the place. I'm not even going to give statistics on that. We've seen it. We've felt it. We need to correct our understanding. So while that first one is a matter of our hearts and, oh, this is hard to do, pretty easy to understand, right? This one, we need to learn to think a little better. So the next couple minutes are going to be about learning to think rightly about divorce. Divorce is not a matter of convenience, pleasure, legality or happiness whether divorce is right or wrong it's almost always messy it's also not the unforgivable sin if your divorce was sin which some of yours were not it's still not the unforgivable sin I want to pull in the bigger teaching of Jesus because I think we've hope accidentally, I hope not in sexual self-righteousness, 
kind of made levels to things. You know, those people, yeah, they've had a divorce. James calls the sin of partiality one of the ugliest things on the planet. And he goes off on the church for having partiality. So here's Jesus' teaching on divorce. Looking at the whole scripture. First, God's design is for one man and one woman to be married for a lifetime. But Adam's sin was passed on to all humans. And unfortunately, every one of us gladly affirm it, which means we're broken. And therefore, all our marriages are broken too. Therefore, divorce is always a result of someone's sin. Pay attention to that language, though. It's a result of someone's sin. But the Bible says divorce itself is not always a sin. But since divorce is the result of someone's sin, it always carries pain and suffering and harm. Number four. The Bible says that divorce is sin when it is because people do not love each other or just want to get divorced. That's, that's sin. <laughs> Lee, how well you have that song memorized. We just saw some music go flying. Number five. The Bible allows divorce. In other words, it is not sin. If your spouse committed adultery. Deuteronomy 22, Matthew 5 here. And six, the Bible allows divorce. In other words, it is not sin if an unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage covenant. This would include things like physically leaving, just just going away, but other clear extremes like abuse. 1 Corinthians 7 teaches us that. In both of these exceptions, divorce is not required, but is often necessary. Sometimes the best course of action is reconciliation, but others, it may be needed. And that's heartbreaking, that's sad. We don't look for that, but it's true. Many times our first consideration has to be the safety of a spouse. This need jumps to the primary. And let me say to you, if you are in this situation now, our church will help you. And let me say to some of you who, who are months, years out of that abusive situation, our hearts still ache for you, and we're sorry. Calling the police is not wrong, and it should happen if you are in danger. Please let me say that again, because some idiots out there in the name of Christ have said different. And their technical term, according to your pastors, is idiots. Please hear that. If you are in danger, call 911 and do not feel any guilt. And the deacon beatdown squad's coming right behind them. Abuse is evil. Please, please hear that. Next. Divorce that meets the Bible's reason for allowing divorce, those two, abandonment and infidelity, is not sin. No, it may not be fun. It won't be. It will not harm your spiritual walk. 
So don't think you can't be who God has called you to be, the, the Christian. You're not a second level believer. Next. Divorce that does not meet the Bible's reasons for allowing divorce is sin, and a Christian shouldn't take that action. It will have practical and spiritual consequences. However, it is not the unforgivable sin, and it doesn't prevent a person from repenting and turning to Jesus as if they committed any other sin. Repentance should be first toward God and then to the former spouse and reconciliation with counsel. Again, there's some parameters here. Should be sought as much as it depends on you. Again, if this is a sinful divorce. Let me say this too. When your spouse divorces you and you've not committed those sins that lead to a divorce, it's not sin on your part. You're not the guilty party here. You have done something, repent on it, but otherwise don't allow false guilt in. If you have, repent. Jesus forgives sin. Lastly, if you have been divorced, and it is one of those reasons that the Scripture allows for divorce, remarriage is allowed. Paul specifically says you're free, but be careful. And so let me say this to everybody. Whether it's been divorced or you're just a single person right now, be careful in your decisions about marriage. They're big. They're big. All right, so let's apply this. How, how can we as the redeemed citizens take Jesus' teaching on divorce seriously in a way that glorifies him? One, if you sinned in divorce, repent and take Jesus' grace so seriously that you don't wallow in it anymore. Be free because Jesus forgives sin. This might mean seeking restoration if that's possible. An elder can help you think through this. But if you sin, repent and then be free. Two, If you've not sinned in divorce, don't live in guilt, please. And I know Satan will try to grab your hearts and twist it and just grab a brother and sister and let us help you fight out of that because that is a false guilt that you do not need to bear. You didn't sin. And we love you and it's a lie from the pit of hell. Church, don't you dare look down on somebody because of a divorce, sinful or not. Don't you dare, brothers and sisters. Don't you become, don't let me become those sexually self-righteous peoples like the Pharisees. Don't do it. Finally, and again, be careful getting marriage. There are few things in life better than a great marriage, and there are few things in life worse than a bad marriage. Be careful. This affects your spiritual life. I don't mean to scare people away from marriage. Be cautious. Be wise. So I love history, literature. How many of you uh, ever had to read the book, The Scarlet Letter, when you were in high school? Anybody? Yeah. At the time, I thought, oh, this is miserable. A book all about guilt. He just goes on and on and on about guilt. The older I've gotten... 
I re- went and reread it, the more genius I see Hawthorne's work in this. Two people. I'm just going to highlight the, the two main characters. Hester. So she commits adultery. And it's obvious because she becomes pregnant. And her punishment from the town is she is forced to wear a giant A for adultery on her dress. The scarlet letter. It's bright red. She's a seamstress, so she sells this real fancy one on there. Everybody knows how bad she is. But do you know what happens over that time? Because everybody knows it. She doesn't have to hide. She doesn't have to sneak around. She doesn't live under this, this false holiness. And she becomes the most free, healthy person in the entire story. She raises her daughter well with love and kindness. And she realizes she's been forgiven. But the second character, Dimsdale, he's the pastor. He's the man with whom she committed adultery. Hides it. His entire life, he hides what he did. And he sees and even preaches to and exposes Hester for her guilt. All the while knowing he has the same. At the end of the story, Dimsdale dies wallowing in guilt. He, he literally guilts himself to death. He never knew the freedom because he was self-righteous. He thought he was above it. It's my plea to you, brothers and sisters, today. As we sing this last song, the, the band's going to come up, lead us again as we sing, Just as I am, I come. In your sin today, come confess to Jesus. If you're not a believer, we'd love to talk to you. Joe's right down here. I'll be down toward the front. We would love to share with you how to do that. But for the majority of you here who are believers in Jesus Christ, for you watching out there on the streaming, repent. Whatever the sin, repent. We have a Savior who forgives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, for our sin. Those sins, the very ones that you know you saw. Well, may we run like the prodigal to your open arms, Father. May we be overwhelmed by your grace for us. In Jesus' name. Amen.